All right, welcome, ladies. <coughs> so we're continuing uh, the study of Tehillim, of David HaMelech Alav Shalom, chapter 61, Samech Aleph. Again, we try to do one a week, not trying to bite off too much. And uh, each chapter is unique and has its own, you know, its own world upon its own, and unto its own. <laughs> and... Uh, we're learning these classes, the Ilun Nishmat the Tzadek, Mrs. Lily Meddeb, Aliyah Shalom, Lily Le'abad Virgineh, her son, Rafi, the great doctor, Mitsuyan Shabirofi. He asked me to deliver these classes to elevate them, the Shamava's mother. And uh, I thought it was a good idea, so. Baruch Hashem. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't get halfway there yet, but we're chipping away. So, chapter 61. Now this chapter uh, is not really based on a single event in the Navi. For those of you that have been enjoying the Shi'urim, most of the time the class begins with a Navi class. And then once you get the Navi down path, then we can go to the chapter. This is David Melech's reaction after all his troubles were done. Uh, David Melech had a lot of issues with Shaul that was chasing him and was on the run. And uh, David always intended that when all this stuff ends, he wants to go back to the yeshiva, take me back to the Bet Midrash, and let me learn, and let me teach, and let me do you know, all my spiritual things. So here, David uh, makes that clear, that his intention always was to get back to business. And the business is the business of Torah study and the business of learning. Couldn't do it because you know, he's on the mountains, like we're going to read, he was on the cliffs, running away, hiding in caves. So he didn't have the, you know, the wherewithal to be where he wanted to be in the Bit Midrash. <clears throat> but now David uh, tells Bore Olam that he's grateful that God heard his prayers, brought him to peace of mind and rest. His troubles subsided, and now he could do what he wanted to do. There was another chapter that we learned earlier where uh, David HaMelech says, Ahad sha'alti me'et Hashem, ota abakesh, shifti me'bet Adonai, kol yemehayai. Azot benoam Adonai, odakir be'echalo. David HaMelech said, I only had one request, Ahad sha'alti me'et Hashem, ota abakesh, and I would ask that over and over again. That means, that was his primary uh, item that he wanted. And what was that? Shifti be'bet Hashem, kol yemehayai. I want to sit in the bit and drash my whole life. It just shows you how David Melech looks at those that are able to sit in the Bet Midrash their whole life and learn Torah. It's a, it's a Gan Eden. Gan Eden It's paradise. So David said, listen, he's the king. He has responsibilities. And his life wasn't easy in the beginning at least. So he says in this chapter, now I'm able to return to my primary vocation, the study of Torah. You have to know, when we talk about Jewish kings like David, these are not kings like, God forbid, you think uh, kings of the Goyim. That it's just about a crown and a throne and glory and people, you know, bowing to them. And, you know, David, you have to look at as whatever, know, whatever rabbi you ever heard of. Uh, Rabbi Akiva, take for example. We all know Rabbi Akiva. Oh, Rabbi Akiva, 24,000 students, great uh, rabbi. His opinions are on every page of the Talmud and the Mishnah. 
There's no question. Just put this in your mind. David Amelech was much greater than Rabbi Akiva. So whatever you think about Rabbi Akiva, David is a greater, greater scholar. Now, God forbid, I don't have to scale out. But I know Rabbi Akiva wasn't a prophet, in all due respect. So you're dealing with the... Just to put it in perspective, what do you think you would do, ladies, if right now David Amelech would walk into the room? Let's say miracle. David voices the guy said, Abutai, I heard you give me the Tehidim class. I want to give you Hakaratatov. You're talking about me every Tuesdays. He walks in. What are you going to do? I know what you're going to do. One of you will jump up. Oh, do you want a coffee? Can I get a tea or something like that? They'll run to the kitchen, get him a tea. Okay. Another one will get up and say, oh, please bless me. Give me beracha. Another one will say, oh, we love your book. We're reading your book. It's unbelievable. What hindushim you have. It's great. And uh, all that stuff. All right, let me tell you what's going to really happen. If he walks in, you're going to hide under the chairs. You're going to hide under the chairs. That's what Rav Shach said once. They said, what do you think if one of the earlier rabbis from the previous generation was walking to Paramit Yeshiva? He said, we'll be so scared. It's such an awesome thing. You hide under the table. What do you mean? You think you're going to go pat him on the back? Hey, David, how you doing? Good to see you. Baruch Abba. Welcome to Deal. Maybe we'll go for, uh, we'll walk on the boardwalk later. You, you'll be, we won't be able to open your mouth in front of the, the tzaddik. That's what it is. Okay, somebody heard me say, ask for a coffee. I got a coffee. Yeah. Look at that. All right, the point is, you have to remember the magnitude of these people. They were spiritual people. They were spiritual giants. So David Amelik says in the chapter, let's get to business. Lamnaseyah is the conductor. David Amelik gives all these pieces to the conductor in the Beit HaMikdash. And uh, he also advised them what instrument to use. I guess each song that he wrote should be played with a certain instrument. And that's Neginat le David. You know, he offers the advice of the Negina. The Negina is the, the way it should be played. <clears throat> David Amelech, not like the other chapters. He's, he's writing this chapter at a time of peace and tranquility and serenity. The previous chapters we've been learning, he's on the run. And here he says, Shem'a Elohim Rinati Hakshiva Tefillati, which simply means, God Almighty, hear my Rina, my song, Hakshiva Tefillati, and hear my prayer. Prayer has two parts. Part of prayer is praising Hashem, that's called Rina, and part of prayer is asking for things, that's called Tefillah. Look at the structure of the Amidah. The first three berachot are praising God. Now, you might say to yourself, what do you mean? God needs to hear his praises? Only weak people need to hear their praises because they have a low self-esteem, so therefore they need to be told, you're great, you're great, you're unbelievable. Now, what do you think? God needs to be told he's great? He knows he's great, and he needs, especially, we're going to tell him, who's going to tell him? A, a little pipsqueak like us would tell God, you should know God, you're unbelievable. Because I, I created you, you didn't tell me that. I need you to tell me I'm unbelievable. You wouldn't have been born if I didn't create you. So what's this whole thing of praising God? The explanation is, we're praising God so we should know who God is. God knows who he is. He's much more than whatever we say in the Amidah. But we're coming to say, you know what this, this, this God is? He's Gadol, Gibor, Nora. And we're talking to ourselves in order to give us the right humility and the right frame that now 
That's why we're coming to you for wisdom. That's why we're coming to you for rifu'ah. That's why we're coming to you for parnasah. Because we know you're everything. But first you have to come to the recognition that God is all these things. So anyway, David Melik says, hear my praises, which means I recognize your greatness and your accolades. Hakshiva rinati. Hakshiva rinati. Hakshiva tefilati. Listen to my prayers, which would be my requests. I was calling out to you when I was being chased from one end or one corner of the earth to the other. Uh, David Melech found himself running away. Uh, he reached, uh, you know, the south of Israel when he was running away from uh, Moab. Uh, he was running away from Shaul. So he says, I called upon you from the corners of the earth. Ba'atof libi. Ba'atof libi means when I was uh, in a uh, dangerous moment, when uh, my heart was under a lot of pressure and under the stress. Ba'atof libi. When my heart was consumed in stress and worry. Bitsur yarum mimeni tanheni. Now this is a time that David Amalek is talking when he was running away from uh, Shaul and he got, maybe ever went to this place, uh, En Gedi. Anybody ever go to Israel? You go to En Gedi, next to the Yamamela. So over there, they have a lot of cliffs. Cliffs, high mountains. So David Amalek is saying he would run on top of these cliffs in order to hide from Shaul. And there's certain animals that climb on those cliffs they're called Ya'ilim. Ya'ilim. Yud'ayin lamid yud'mim. Ya'ilim. In English, I think they call it an ibex. It's like an animal that has horns and they're like a deer of some sort. So he said, I was with the ibexes on top of the, uh, on top of the mountains, on top of the cliffs. Bitsur. Tsur is like a tsuk, is a, is, is a cliff. Yarum mimendi. Uh, that were very high. Tanheni. But I knew that one day you're going to save me. Tanheni. I knew you're going to bring me to Minuha. I knew you're going to bring me to peace. David is showing his faith that he had in God that even in the difficult times, I knew that's going to come to an end and everybody's going to be okay and I'm going to end up coming back to the yeshiva. Ki hayita mahaseli. You are my uh, protector. Mahaseli is a protector. Migdal oz mepene oyev. The emunah that I had in you served as a fortress uh, against the enemies, which means, what's that Bizamelech's weapon that he used in order to protect himself? His faith. So therefore he says, Migdal Oz, the emunah that I had in you was the best uh, fortress that I can imagine, against Shaul and all the people that were trying to run after me. Now we get to a very famous pasuk, not only in Tehrim, but just in general. Tehrim says, Agura be'aholecha olamin. What does it mean? I want to live in your tent forever. Now he says, I want to live in your tent in worlds. Plural. Now how many worlds are there? There's two worlds. We're not counting Disney World. So you have Olamazer, this world, and you have Olamaba. So David says, I want to rest or dwell in your worlds forever. That she says, what worlds are we talking? Zakeni ba'olamazeh 
That means I want to be in the Bet Midrash in this world, and I want to be in the Bet Midrash in the next world. You know what they call the next world? Yeshiva Shel Ma'ala. It's a yeshiva. You don't want to scare some people. They say, more yeshiva, I want to go sit there. They think Olam uh, is sitting uh, in, uh, in Hawaii. No, it's a spiritual paradise. And therefore, David HaMelech is saying, I want to sit in the uh, bask in the spiritual panacea in this world and in the next world. Now, on this, there is a famous, famous uh, midrash that I'll read to you. Agura ba'olecha olamim. It sounds like that he's asking, I want to live forever. Because olamim could mean forever. Olamim, the olam. So the Midrash asks in Shohar Tov, did David think he's going to live forever? We know, by the way, he didn't even live too long. He lived to 70. So what is he asking God? I want to live olamim forever. So the Midrash asks, David olamim? He made a prayer. Let my songs of my Tehillim be sung and learned in the Bate Midrash and in the Bate Kedeshot forever. That means my legacy, which is the Tehillim, let that be an eternal uh, 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 remembrance and a commemoration of my life. And he got answered. Because wherever you go in the world, I don't care what bed can you're going to go to, they have a Tehillim book, and they have Tehillim chats today, and they have Tehillim classes, and they have Tehillim groups on Shabbat. And God forbid when somebody passes away, that's the go-to book, Tehillim, in order to elevate the soul. So David Amin is saying, eternalize my book. Why? Well, because that's a zikhut for David. That's the prayer that came true. But the Gemara says that it's possible that a person is able to live forever. Yes, it is possible. Now I'm going to explain it to you. I'm sure this will interest you because who doesn't want to live forever? Now this is not uh, the suggestion of uh, the fountain of youth of Ponce de Leon. This is a spiritual advice that the Chamim are going to give that how do you live forever? So the explanation is like this. What I'm telling you now comes from a rabbi called Rav Elimelech Medinov. He wrote a sefer called Bnei Yisachar. Fascinating, fascinating concept, what he says. He said, listen, when we talk about living, living means that you're living with purpose. You're living not just bodily function. Animals are also living. That's not called living. Living means you're living according to your Purpose, you have an objective in life. And that's, of course, Torah Mitzvot. That's called life. True life. Now, reality is, after a person passes after 120, you can't do any more Mitzvot. There's no opportunities to do Mitzvot in Olam Abba. That's the facts. First of all, uh, Mitzvot are only done in Olam HaAsiyah, in the world of action. The next world is called Olam HaGimul, the world of the world of payment, the world of uh, 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 credit. Here we do the mitzvot, and then we get reward for them. <coughs> David Amalek said it in another chapter: "Bametim Hofshi. When a person dies, he's free. Free from what? Free from mitzvot, which is not a good thing. The halacha says that even when one goes to the cemetery, 
or they're in the proximity of a dead body, they're really not supposed to do mitzvot in front of the dead body. You know, they're not supposed to do uh, things that might get the dead body jealous. That's considered taunting them. Aha, I could do a mitzvah. In the olden days when the people used to wear their seat strings out. The Gemara said, when a man would go to the cemetery, he would have to put the strings in. Because he didn't want to, as if to say, haha, I could do the mitzvah of seat, and you can't. That's taunting the dead. That's called lo'eg larash. Lo'eg. You're taunting the poor person. The poor person, he could be a rich man, but he's poor because he can't do mitzvot. So in that sense, when a person dies, it's a great tragedy for the person. No more opportunities. I remind you what the Gaon the Vilna said on his deathbed. There was nobody like the Gaon. He was crying. They said, Gaon, there's nothing for you to cry. You're going to the highest levels. He said, here, for a small amount of rubles, I could buy a pair of seat and gain eternity. There, for all the millions of rubles in the world, I can't do one mitzvah. So he cried because of the lost opportunities. He was not going to be able to serve anymore. Listen, he comes with a lot, but the tzaddik wants more. However, it is possible to live forever. The Gemara says this in Yibamot. What does it say? The Gemara says that if a person leaves a spiritual legacy, specifically they're talking about in this case, for example, uh, they raised children in the right way. Or if you're a teacher, you taught spiritual lessons, taught our lessons. And after the person's passing, those lessons are still being perpetuated by the children. Oh, my mother used to say, she used to teach us. Oh, my father used to say, my grandfather used to say. So as long as your teachings are still living through students or others, the Gemara says that becomes a credit to the deceased, and therefore he's able to still consider to have zechut, even after he passes. The Gemara says even further, if you could imagine this, that when a, let's say a rabbi, who taught his whole life, he has students and so on, then after 120 passes, when they quote him, oh, Rabbi so-and-so said, like we always call him, Chambaruch, Chambaruch said, the lips of the Sadiq move in the grave. And therefore, it's as if he's alive. And that's why it's possible, the Gemara says, to live in two worlds at the same time. That Sadiq can be an ulama ba, but if they're still quoting his words, he's alive because his lips are moving in the grave. And that gives the rabbi or the parent credit in ulama ba. Even though a person cannot uh, move himself up to the higher levels because he's finished, but he can be moved by the actions of others. Others that were directly influenced by him. Specifically, when they quote his teachings or her teachings. You know, the great Rebbesons. So they're students, they quote them. Oh, the Rebbesson said this, the Rebbesson said that. So in Olam first she gets the benefit because her words are still resonating on earth. And even on earth, her lips move and that's a, that's a power. So the B'nai Yisachat explains it like this. as a genius way of explaining it. There's a halakha that says certain vessels, if they serve a function, they're able to become susceptible to contamination. Only a vessel is susceptible to contamination. It's a law. That's the rules. If it's not a vessel, it cannot become tamir. So the Gemara Mishnah gives an example. How about a bell? A bell. What is a bell? It has the outer metal casing 
and then it has the uh, the clapper inside, and therefore that clapper causes it to make noise. Therefore, it has a function. So therefore, the Gemara says the inba inba is the bell has the ability to receive tumah because it has the function because of the clapper that's inside. So then the Mishnah says, and what if the clapper falls out? So now the bell really can't make any noise. So seemingly it does not have function. But I says, no, it still does. Why? Because you can bang it against something else. If I take the metal, the outer case, and I bang it against the piece of uh, pottery, clank, clank. So therefore, it's still susceptible because it could still serve a function, albeit not by itself, but through something else. Says the Rav, that a person is the same way. A person has a neshama inside of him. The neshama gives the ability to a person to make sounds and speak. We're like a bell. What gives the ability for us to talk? The soul that's inside of you. The soul is the uh, uh, area of the body that when Adam received his soul, the rabbis explained he became a speaking creature. We always thought when he got his soul, he became a spiritual creature. Absolutely. But the Targum explains when he got his soul, he became Ruach Mimalela, a creature that now has the ability to speak. So speaking is a product or is a, is, is a function of the soul. You have to know that. That's why when people speak too much or speak the wrong things, they're abusing the soul. It's an abusing of the soul. Therefore, the, 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 the soul that causes people to speak should be not used for the, wrong, for the wrong things. That's why sins of speech are very, very serious. Not because it comes from the mouth, but it comes from the neshama. And therefore, it's wasting the, the function of a neshama. Especially, that's why you understand now why on Shabbat, for example, there's so many restrictions on what you're allowed to speak. Because on Shabbat, we have an extra neshama. Therefore, you have to be extra careful not to abuse that power that God gives us. That's why we use the speech on Shabbat for the Torah, for Musar, for Pismonim, Bakashot, things like this. Be very careful to that. Uh, the Gemara says, obviously, that uh, uh, speech is worth a coin, but silence is worth two, as we've said many times. Uh, a word should only be said if you think it's more valuable than being silent. You only should say a word if you feel that the word is more expensive than being silent. If the word you don't think is more valuable than being silent, then you better off being silent because odds are the word is usually cheaper than silence. You ever hear talk is cheap? Whoever said that, they know what they were talking about. In any event, so what the rabbi is saying over here is, is that if a human being has a neshama when he's alive and he makes noise, like the clapper that the bell makes noise, so therefore, he's considered that he's living with function. But even after the person dies, he can make noise through others. Like when the clapper falls out of the bell, we said it still has a function because it could be banged on something and the sound will come not from it, but from something else that it's banged on. So when a person passes, if others are still quoting him and quoting his teachings and quoting what he learned, so therefore, he's still making noise, albeit not uh, directly, but indirectly. And therefore, he lives forever. That's a, that's a very important lesson 
that we, we are able to eternalize, eternalize ourselves. I mean, turn ourselves into eternal people, that we can always st- still progress in the upper worlds. How? It's, in science, they call it the ripple effect. Remember when you were young, they taught us that? You went to the pond, and you took a pebble, and you, you tossed it into the pond, and all of a sudden you saw ripples. And you saw it. Now, long after that rock was tossed into the pond, and long after that you left, it's still making ripples. So the goal in life is to create a splash, where even after the person leaves, that splash is still having consequence and reverberating in the, in the children, the grandchildren. And I know myself, my grandfather always said, my grandfather always said, this, this personalities that have influence on you, and hopefully the influence is good, so they live, they live through that, those teachings. So that's what David Amalek was saying. I hope my teachings will give me eternity. Because the people will always be quoting my teachings. What are we doing now? We're quoting David Amalek. So his teachings are still being taught. His lips are moving in the grave. And therefore it's an advantage to the tzaddik. And he is elevated uh, to the next levels. Uh, he's not talking directly. But he talks through us. And therefore it's like the, the clapper. He cannot make its own voice because it broke, but it can make noise through others. Now, I will tell you something. There's a big question that was asked by a great rabbi called Rav Hida. It's good to know this information. He, he, asks, he asks it over here, actually, in his book called Chomat Anach, on this, uh, on this chapter in Tehillim. The heavy of that saying that says that Eliyahu goes to every Brit Milah. I'm sure you heard that. We even have a chair for the Nabi when he comes. Do you know why he comes to every Brit Milah? Not for the Sabusak. Why does he come to every Brit Milah? That better Sabusak and Allah Mabayra doesn't come for that. So what is he coming to every Brit Milah for? So they tell us it's a punishment. It's a punishment? That's why is it a punishment to go to a bridge? Unless you're the kid that's getting cut, why should it be a, a punishment for the Nabi to go to the Brit Milah? That's also a zikut for the kid. He says, because Eliyahu Nabi once spoke bad about the Jewish people. Uh, when God was talking to Eliyahu Nabi, Eliyahu Nabi said, God, the Jewish people have forsaken your covenant. And God felt that that was wrong. I don't need you to speak prosecution against my children. You're the prophet. You're supposed to defend them. I know what they're doing. David felt that Eliyahu should not have casted the Jewish people in a bad light. So he said, you say that they have abandoned their breed? Now on, you're going to go to every Brit, and you have to come back and report to me that they're still doing the Brit. So the Hidah says, but well, why is that a punishment? <laughs> the punishment, I would have said, would be, you can't go to another Brit in your life. That's a punishment. But to now make it that the Awanabi must attend every Brit and report back to God that the Jewish people are fulfilling the Brit, not a punishment. As a matter of fact, he gets so much honor. We don't start the beat till he gets there. He gets his own chair. We mention him. We sing songs about him. Why is that a punishment? Says Rafaida. I have it over here. If you have a, 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 the ears to listen to it, it's such a beautiful, beautiful piece. So he says like this God said, The Rabbi Yaakov Semach asked, What's the onish? What's the punishment? V'tinets. The onish should be bezman shehu lemata when he's on earth. 
מאבד חידושים שמתחדשים במטיפתא דנקיה. What do you think the tzaddikim are doing in Olam Abba? They're learning. Hidushim, stuff that they never heard of. All new, you know, ideas in Torah. But in order to enjoy and benefit from it, you got to be there. What happens with Eliyahu Nabi? He's always being called out. So when he comes to the Bleed Milah, he misses the Hidushim. Now he comes back and tells him, we can't review can't review for you. You just missed an unbelievable thing from Moshe Rabbeinu. He's giving a douche today. Review for me. I can't listen. You're in and out all that long. So that's the punishment for the Avonavi. That he, he, every time he has to come to me, even if it's for a second. Because by the way, he doesn't come early and he doesn't stay late. He just comes to the actual cutting, which takes one second, and he's on to the next one. But he's always going from bleed to bleed. 24 hours a day, he has to run around. So he definitely misses the flow of the Vre Torah in heaven. He's not getting a full you know, uninterrupted shi'ur, we'll say. So the punishment is what? Bitul Torah. And then for the tzaddik, that's the biggest punishment. What a novel way to learn the punishment for that one. So Rav Chida then says, so what are you telling me that when we quote the tzaddik, his lips start moving on earth? What do you mean? That's a punishment because now that we're activating his lips on earth, we're taking him away from the real show in heaven. Understand his question? His answer, to him he says, I have an easy answer to this one. He says, listen, there's different parts of the soul. The soul of the tzaddik is in Olam Abba. We're talking about his body. The body starts to talk. But that doesn't interrupt the action that the soul is involved in. In every, it's two different parts. You can have a person's neshama basking in the upper worlds, and you can have his body also. So that's what it means. You're living in both worlds. You ever hear somebody say, you're living in two worlds? Well, in this sense, it's a good thing. The tzaddik wants to live in two worlds. He wants his body talking the Vrei Torah in the grave, which is a credit. I'll get reward for that. And he wants to have the Vrei Torah in the heavens, which is through his soul. And how do we do that? When we quote the tzaddikim, so the tzaddikim already have now impact in two words. And that's what he was saying. I want to be in the Beit Midrash. I want to write my Tehillim. I want the people to teach it and learn it. And therefore, it'll give me eternal life in two worlds. There's no question. No question. That, that's, why, that's why he's not going to die. That means he, it's as if he's still living. And just like a living person can elevate himself through his good deeds, but when he's alive, he's elevating himself through himself. Now a person through this system can elevate himself through the deeds of others that were directly impacted by the deceased. So therefore, by us reading Tehillim, yes, David Amalek is going to the higher levels. And if he went to his grave, wherever he's buried in Jerusalem, you'd hear his lips are moving all day long. There's always somebody reading Tehillim. So David Amalek's lips are always moving. So it definitely he's living in two worlds. By the way, we can do this too. If we leave a positive influence on our children, we also create this ripple effect. And uh, basically we create it, we, we give ourselves eternity. I will be protected in, your, uh, in the wings. Wings, that's the protective force of God, Selah forever. And now the Pasuk says, Ki ata. Now, before I go further, 
I did. Uh, I did see something here. Uh, it's a little deeper piece, but well, we'll take a shot. We'll take a crack at it. There's a piece over here from Likutim Haran, from Rabbi Nachman, from Breslau. He has little paragraphs. This is in paragraph 145, where he expands on this pasuk. Now, I don't know how the rabbis saw things in these pasukim like they did, but it's amazing how they were able to build these concepts. He quotes a, a, a Gemara. The Gemara says, En Adam met... How did we always learn it before Rabbi Nachman came along? Simple way of learning it. A person does not leave this world with half his desires in his pocket. That means people always want more than they have. And the Gemara says if he has 100, he wants 200. And if he has 200, he wants 400. You're never satisfied. Although when he had nothing, if you would have told him, what if you have a hundred? I promise I'll be happy. I promise just give me a hundred, I'll be happy. And once he got the hundred, he's not happy. Now he wants two hundred. He says, I promise if I get the two hundred, I won't, I won't complain anymore. Once he gets the two hundred, he wants one. That's the nature of humans. Humans are never satisfied. They always want more. So the Gemara says, in Adamit, that a person doesn't die and leave this world with half of his desire, in his head. He always leaves this world hungry. Or he always leaves this world unsatisfied. Always wanting more. That's a simple explanation. It's a musad in the cravings and the insatiable desires of humans. Therefore, the Gemara is telling you, you know, you have to curb that. You have to make sure that you don't get caught into that, you know, uh, desire and running after the pleasures because it will never end. Pleasures of this world, monetary, like salt water. You drink it, you think it's satisfied, but salt water, after, after a half hour, you're twice as thirsty. And if you only want more, it only activates your uh, desire to drink. It doesn't quench your thirst. Spiritual items also are never quenched, so it's better to try to go after spiritual things which are eternal than temporary things. That's a simple Gemara. But he says like this. We're going to quote his words. The goal is to live forever in two worlds, like David Amelech said. Agura But how is that done? So, if you're a rabbi, if you're a teacher, you want your words to be quoted long after you pass. You want your teachings to have perpetuation. Beautiful. But he says, that if the rabbi or the teacher or the parent is what we call ba'al mahloket, they are argumentative or they're divisive, they're not uh, you know, seeking uh, peace, they're looking to make a divide amongst people, they will not have this merit. God will see to it that they will not have this merit, that their words will be living after them. He's going to learn it from the words of this Gemara that I just quoted you. En adam met Don't ask how. You have to be Houdini to get those out of those words. But Rabbi Nachman will figure that out in a second. But he brings a proof 
There's some great rabbis, and we're going to learn the Gemara together. Great rabbis, but the ones that were divisive, they did not get the merit that their words will be quoted for the future. He quotes a Gemara, I brought it here. I know you, don't, you ladies don't learn Gemara that often, but this, this Gemara, you won't have a problem with it. So. It's not that you me, but it's a nice piece. It's in Horayot, page 13, 13b. Gemara tells a story. Rabban Shimon bin Gamliel Nasi. Rabban Shimon bin Gamliel was the Nasi, was the president, chief rabbi. Rabbi Meir, Hacham. Rabbi Meir was considered the Hacham of the generation. And Rabbi Natan, Avbedin. Okay, so each rabbi has his uh, position. Kiyava Ayil, Rabban Gamliel Hatam, Rabban Shimon Gamliel Hatam, when Rabban Shimon Gamliel would enter the Beit HaMidrash, the whole Midrash would rise in honor of the Nasi. Hail to the chief. When the other two rabbis would enter the Beit HaMidrash, same reception. Everybody would stand for them. Rabban Shimon felt that being the Nasi, there should be a difference in the way he's received and the way they're received. I promise you, this had nothing to do with kavod or looking for glory. But these rabbis felt that each position deserves a certain type of respect in order, they could, in order that they might be effective. So therefore he felt the three positions cannot be respected equally. So what did he do? When they all stood up for the other two rabbis, he said, Shouldn't there be a difference between the reception that I receive as the Nasi and that you receive? There has to be a certain uh, 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 hierarchy just so the people will know. So he made a new takana that when the Nasi walks in, everybody stands up and when anybody else walks in, although they're very high positions, only the first two rows. Made a rule, new protocols. Now, Ahu Yoma, that day that he made this new ruling, the two rabbis weren't there. So they didn't know that he passed this new rule. So they're going to be shocked when they walk into the Beit Midrash the next day and they don't get the same reception. They're going to say, What's going on over here? That's exactly what happened. The next day, when they came, he saw that the congregation was not standing in front They saw that the congregation was not standing in front of them. Like they were accustomed to. So they said, Amri, my high. My high meaning mazot. What's going on over here? They said, listen, you didn't come yesterday, but Rabbi Shimon made a rule. That for now on, when you guys walk, when you guys, when you suddenly keep walking, first two rows, that's it. That's the rules. And when he walks in, the whole place stands up. Ah, really? That's a good rule. So the tells the listen, we're not pushovers. I'm the hakam, you're the abedin. Just like he made a rule, we'll make our rule. He's the only one that make rules. We'll make a rule. Now, what was the rule they made? My na'abedle. Stories of the Gemara. 
says, listen, Naban Shimonia was the president, chief rabbi. There was one area in Mishnah that he didn't have fluent. So the trick they're going to pull on the rabbi is they're going to come the next day and they're going to make an announcement in front of the whole yeshiva, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, please can you teach the congregation Uksin, knowing that he doesn't know that chapter. And then, what are they expecting to happen? Rabban Shimon is going to say, well, you know, I don't know that one. And then they're going to say, well, listen, how could you be the president if you don't know? We need you to teach us, therefore we vote to depose him. This was an unbelievable plan over here. You got the plan? It was a setup, we call that. <clears throat> so it says, We'll tell him to reveal to us the Mishnayot of called Uksin. He doesn't have it. Because he didn't learn it, so he won't be able to teach it. Then we could tell him, listen, the one that can speak all Torah should be the one that serves the president. And the one that can't speak all the Torah should, should uh, resign. That's the way of saying, we'll fix that bunch of them. He's making rules against us. Who stands, who doesn't stand. Once we get done with him, by tomorrow afternoon, he won't be the president. You didn't know this happens in the Beit HaMidrash. You thought everybody's living uh, like uh, Goldilocks. No, this is over here. Some, uh, I wouldn't call it politics, but these are things that happen. Again, I will tell you, everybody was Hashem Shamayim. As, as much as it doesn't sound like they were Hashem Shamayim, trust me, they were Hashem Shamayim. These are great rabbis. They, had, they, had, they definitely had pure motivations, although it sounds like it's like a political, uh, you know, it sounds like the House of Representatives here, the Senate, Abdeel. It's not. That's for sure. One day I'll explain to you the depth of the Kabbalah. It's not why I'm reading this Kabbalah now. Anyway, they said, Rabbi Yaakov bin Karshi, there was a rabbi there called Rabbi uh, Yaakov ben Karshi. And he was worried for the, for the embarrassment of Rabban Shimon Gamliel. He said, well, these rabbis are going to come tomorrow. They're going to embarrass him. He's not going to know Uksin. It's going to be a terrible busha. This rabbi says, I cannot let Rabban Shimon Gamliel go through this, uh, this ordeal. So what did he do? But on the other hand, he doesn't want to be a tattletale. You know, he doesn't want to go to the rabbi. Shemun goes, oh, I heard those two. He has to play it safe. Azal, he went. Yatib Ahoreh And he sat outside the window of Rabban Shemun Gamliel. And what did he do? Pashat, he opened up the book called the book of Uksim, the book that this rabbi was not fluent in. Garas Utana, Garas Utana. He just kept on reading it out loud over and over and over again. So the rabbi will get a hint that, uh, get ready. This is, uh, they're going to get you on this one. So he kept on repeating it and repeating it. So he's wondering, why is he repeating this Mishnayot from my window? Is he serenading me with my second uksid? What kind of serenade is this? So he says, Amar, what is this? Maybe something is going to be needed from me, and I don't know this Masechet well. Let me study it tonight. Ya'iv da'ateh ugrasa. It took him only one night to study it. He studied all Masechet Uksim. Now he came in armed. Limahal. Sure enough, he comes in the next day. Amrule. 
They tell him, Niti mor v'nitni be'uksin. Hey, Rabbi, why don't you teach us uksin? They're expecting Rabban Shemangam to say, I don't know it. Turns out to their, to their shock, not only does he know it, he says it by heart, fluent. They couldn't believe it. This guy over here, what did they learn uksin? This is what we call, it backfired. So it says, Batar de Ukim, after he finished his whole dissertation of Masichet Uksi, Amar Lehu, he turns to the two rabbis, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Natan, Ilogamirna, if I wouldn't have learned this last night, Kasiftin, you would have embarrassed me in front of the whole congregation. Pakid, Rafkinu Babemit Rasha. He says, as a result, you need to be punished. It's unbelievable. He's punishing these old men. And he, uh, gave them a uh, uh, exit pass. You cannot be in the Beit Midrash. It's like in school, you go in the corner. He told these two rabbis, not because they weren't vaccinated, they were vaccinated, <laughs> but because today they were throwing out because he didn't get the boost, he didn't get the seventh shot. But in those days, they didn't care about that stuff. He told them, you have to leave the Beit Midrash because you didn't act properly. You're lucky I knew it. And if I didn't know it, what would have happened? You would have shamed me? This is, you don't have Go away. So now they're in the hall. And every time they have to question, they have to write it in the paper. It, was, uh, you know, it wasn't a good system. So the people said, okay, Rabbi, we can't, we can't live like this. These are great rabbis. They're in the hall. They're studying their questions in. We're answering them through, uh, you know, Morse code. It doesn't work. So finally, uh, the rabbi said, fine. Amalim Rabban Shalom Gamliel, Ne'ailinu. Fine, they can come back. But, now here's Rabbi Nachman's point. Look at the punishment that they received because they were trying to make a divisiveness in the Beit Midrash. Rabban Shimon was the president. You have to accept the president's rulings. He is the highest authority. The Nasi is the highest authority. And they came along and said, whoa, we want to show. So they, they tried to make a little ruckus, as we would call it. It backfired, Baruch Hashem. The bunch of guys kavod stayed into, but the rabbi said these are divisive people. As great as they are, they tried to stir the uh, not good to make machlokin in the bit midrash. Machlokin is good if you're making a machlokin in learning. Learning it's different. You say yes, I say no. You have a logic, I have a different logic. That's okay, but this was not a machlokin in learning. This was a machlokin in in um, in the way the yeshiva should be run. That's in, um, in the protocols. And that, the bunch of makes the decisions. Well, they came and stirred the pot a little. So what did he do? And here's the key. Miu niknesinu. We're going to penalize them. What's the penalty? We're not going to quote their names when we quote their teachings. They could give us teachings, but when we write the quotes, they now refer to the Bimi'ir as Ahirim. Whenever the Bimi'ir would say something, they would not say, they would say, others say. Ahirim. And when it came to Rabbi Natan, they called Rabbi Natan Yesh Omrim. Whenever you see the Gemara, Yesh Omrim, some say, that's Abinatan. What's the punishment? 
What's the difference? So you don't quote the Bimira. No, the punishment is great. Because now these statements are not going to be said in the names of these rabbis and therefore it'll influence them for eternity. Because now you don't have a statement, Rabbi Meir Omer, Rabbi Natan Omer. He took away that. That's, by the way, that's a big penalty. That's not you know, getting a ticket for double parking. That's a, that's a serious penalty. Wow. He took away their names and therefore they don't have that that ability to have their names quoted for eternity. And Rabbi Nachman writes, that's the punishment of people that are involved in Mahloket. Mahloket causes that the person's name will be removed from uh, you know, posterity. Forever. And he says, that's what it means when it says in that statement that he quoted. En Adam met. That's a good thing. En Adam met. We don't want people to die. En Adam met. That's a great thing. En Adam met. Means what guarantees or preserves in Adam met that a person will not die, that even after he dies, he'll still be alive. How do you get to that status of in Adam met? So he says, Vahatsi. You know what Hatsi means? Not half. Hatsi comes from the word Hetz. You know what a Hetz is? Arrows. The arrow is the sign of Mahloket. Because when you want to have a fight with somebody in the olden days in the war, you have to catch arrows, your bow and arrow. There's a desire to have mahloket. There's a desire to make strife, to make divisiveness. But if a person can control that desire of mahloket, the desire to shoot arrows, he controls it in his hand. En adamet, he will not die. En adamet, what gives a person the status of that he will never die? Vahatsi ta'avato, the ta'ava of hatsi, of arrows, hitzeh, like he goes, ba'ale, varobu ba'ale hitzim, ba'ale pelukta. He's able to control his desire to make mahloket. It's biyado, it's in his hand. When you're holding something, it means you're controlling it. He doesn't let it. Control him. His desire to make mahlukah is biyado. Then guess what? He won't die. God will see to it that his words will be quoted forever. David makes the perfect example. No matter how much they tried to fight with him, he never fought back. Shaul was chasing him and trying to kill him. And David could have killed him three times over. And what did he keep on doing? He cuts the corner of his garment. He, he put the, uh, the sword behind his head like we learned. David says, I'm not fighting with anybody. And look what ended up happening. All day long recording the words of David. Those two rabbis in the Bet Midrash that tried to make Mahloket, what ended up happening? They lost that, that ability. So that's, a, that's a, something else to think about when, you, when a person wants to make Mahloket. Mahloket actually uh, affects one's eternity according to this over there. You know, we think, oh, I'm making Mahloket, big deal. No, Bore Olam, there's a, there's a price to pay when there's, when there's divisiveness with Mahloket. But Olam sees it to it that that person will not have the ability to, to continue to live even after he, 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 his, his demise. He will not be able to live in two worlds, edge to a certain extent. Wow, that's a, that's a big piece from this rabbi over here. And the way he sees it in, in those words. I mean, it's a small paragraph, but wow, I don't know how I never heard of this before. But this is a big, big thing. I definitely going to think twice the next time I, uh, I go to war, that's for sure. 
All right, now let's continue the chapter. Oh, here we are. Ki ata Elohim shamata lindarai. Yeah, God Almighty, you heard my vows. What is the vows? David Ramelech would make vows when he was in trouble. God, if I get out of this, I promise you I'll go back to the Bit Midrash. I'll go back to learn all day long. So he said, you heard my vows. And as a result, you brought me to my inheritance, which means you allowed me to inherit my enemies, to inherit the land. You brought me to peace. Now I can go back to fulfill. You know where we learn that when a person's in trouble to make vows? Not us, but Sadiqim, Yaakov Abim. Remember Yaakov was on the way, running away from his father's house? And now he was going to spend a lot of time in Lavan's house. So what did he say? Before he left, he said, Elohim imadi. If Hashem will be with me, Ushmarani and God will protect me on this road over here. God will give me, you know, food to eat, close to where. And I will return home safely. Uh, and I will still be spiritually whole. I will give you know, 20% of everything back to God. He ended up giving everything back to God. The point is that Sadiqim, when they're in trouble, they make Nidarim. So David Amal says, you remember the Nidarim that I made when I was in trouble? You heard it, but not only did you hear it, you helped it come true. You got me out of my troubles and you allowed me to go back to the Bet Midrash in order to study Torah. Yamim al tosif This is a song it's a pasuk, but when, whenever you see great rabbis walk into a room, the yeshiva boys sing this pasuk. Yamim al yamim melech tosif shnota yamim al yamim. They sing the song. I'm not going to sing it now. You'll hear it the next time. It's not uh, quiet practice. Yamim al yamim melech tosif. What does it mean? The Bina Melech is saying, God Almighty, add days to the days of the king. He was the king. David Melech, he would live to 70 years. He knew that he was living on borrowed time, David. He was supposed to die at birth. David Melech only had three hours of life in the original plan. That's all he was supposed to live. We don't have God's business, that's God's business. Adam Arishon, as we know, was supposed to live a thousand years. And when he saw, because God gave Adam ability to see all the future generations. When he saw that David's holy soul only has three hours of life, he told God, hey, well, it's going on basis. That's why I only have three years for him. So Adam said, well, how much years do I have? Do you have a thousand? He says, great, I want to make a donation. Okay, what do you want to do? I want to make a transfer, a bank transfer. How much do you want to transfer? Transfer 70 years from my account to David's account. And really, David was living on borrowed years from Adam and Ishon. Just shows you how great David was. That means the last 70 years of Adam Rishon was lived through David. So it's not a small thing. It's not a small thing. And then we know David is the Mashiach. That's why they call Adam, Adam. Adam is in Hashem Tevot. Aleph is Adam, Dalit is David, and Mem is Mashiach. Because Adam would have that three, three-pronged life. He would have himself, and then he would be in David, and David becomes... And so these are... Nuclear neshamot. We don't even know what type of neshamot is. Neshamav Adam Rishon. Adam Rishon was the, was the, was the most, uh, 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 the greatest, the largest of all the neshamot. That's what David Melech ended up uh, having. Fine. 
So he says, now that I have peace, uh, I'm young, but I want to learn a lot of Torah, I don't want to become spiritually right. I need time for that. So give me life, so I'll be able to spiritually serve. Why did the Sadiqim want life? The Goyim, they have a new item they created a couple of years ago, bucket list. What does it mean, bucket list? I didn't know what it was either, but I always see people saying it. I asked somebody, I said, can you explain me this over here? What, what, what does it mean over there? They said, you know, Rabbi, when a person dies, they say he kicked the bucket. So they have a list of things that they want to do before they kick the bucket. It means these are things that people want to do before they die. So they call that a bucket list. Okay, I do, Shalom, you taught me something. Now, what are, what are the things? One guy says, oh, before I die, I want to uh, go to, uh, you know, to Bora Bora, to, to Tahiti. That's what you want to do before you die. Another guy wants to, you know, uh, visit this uh, movie star. Another guy wants to, you know, see some, sp- go to the Super Bowl, you know, bucket list. Go to, but nonsense. The tzaddikim, why do they want to live? They said, we want to live because we didn't do Shas yet 15 times. We didn't do the whole Zohar. I need time to learn Teilim. I need time to, you know, uh, 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 make this Tikkun. And that's all they want life for. And I need time to make Teshuvah, to repent for my... That's the bucket list. Things you want to do before you die. These, 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 these are... So the Bidah Melech is saying this. Yamim al Yamim Melech Tosif God. I'm young now. When he wrote this chapter, he was not 70, obviously. He was young. But he's saying, listen, I have a lot of goals. I have a lot of aspirations. I have a lot of objectives. Therefore, to fulfill these objectives, you need time. You need life. So he says, Yamim. And by the way, that's the biggest sigula to extend life. If there's such a thing. It seems like there is such a thing. When you tell God that I need life to serve you. So now Barilam says, huh? it's to my advantage to give him life. I once heard a beautiful explanation. There was once a, a fellow, it was in the shul, and the rabbi was praying. And the rabbi was praying for the sick people. So he said, uh, this guy and this guy. So the guy says, Rabbi, I have a name for you. Could you pray for him? He's very sick. He said, of course. What's the guy's name? He says, John. John? Okay, doesn't sound like one of the Lamed Bab Sadiqim. Okay, John. What's his mother's name? Mary. John, Mary. He says, to be a favor. The guy's deathly ill. He's going to die any day. Pray for the guy. Okay, pray. John, Mary. He's going to ask you a question. Why do you want him to, why are you praying for this guy so much? He says, he owes me money. (laughs) If he dies... And there goes my money. So the same thing, when a person is praying for life, and he says, God, you know I want life? Because I owe you. I owe you so much, and I didn't finish paying you yet for all the good that you do, and I need to do more mitzvot, and I need to raise children, I need to make a family, I need to do all good things for you. So God says, hey, give him life. I have an advantage. If he lives, I get paid. Ah, so therefore, that's what the Bira Melech is saying. Yamim al Yamelech tosif. Shnotav kemotor vador. Let my years be uh, like generations. A generation means 70 years in this, because uh, it says, So therefore, basically, he was asking for the 70 years that he should get it from, uh, from Adam Rishon. And he actually, he actually got it. David Amelie calls himself a third person, which is a little strange. He should say, give me, give me, give me. why is he calling himself the Melech? Because he was saying, I don't want the years for myself. 
as the melech, I have tremendous influence over the people. So there yamim al yamim melech. Give it to me because I'm in such a position that if you give me these years, I can use them to influence the whole nation. Therefore, it's to your advantage, kibyachol, that I get these years. Yeshev olam nefne Elohim. My goal is that all the years that I'm alive, even if I live a hundred or a thousand years, I don't want to do anything else. All I want to do is sit in the Bet Midrash in front of God, in front of Elohim. Hesed ve'emet man yinsidu. The midot of God. God is hesed, hesed is kindness, and emet is truth. Man, man over here means God should uh, should count me in uh, with these midot yinsiduhu. That should prepare God. Say it like this: God, who is hesed and emet, who is kind and truthful, man yin siru, he should protect me that I'll be able to sit in uh, in peace and in tranquility to fulfill my life's dream to study Torah. I mean, he should man, he should prepare me or count me in to that zechut to be protected and sit in the midrash. Ken azamirash mchalaat. And as a result, I will sing and praise your name forever. Which means, when you do this good to me, I will give you back praise. And I will make good on my vow day in and day out. The vow that I made to you, that if I get out of this mess, I'll come back to the Bet Midrash. I promise you, God, I will make good on this vow yom yom, every, every single day. It's interesting the Gemara in today's Dafayomi, and we'll conclude with this. And today we're learning Hagigah, page six. I don't know, ladies, if you did the Daf yet, but the, today's Daf says that Yom Yom, what does it mean, Yom Yom, day in and day out? The Gemara tells a story of a man that was a working man, he was very busy, and he couldn't spend so much time in the Beit HaMidrash. His business kept him uh, occupied. But one day a year, he was able to take off and study Torah the whole day. That was it. Then he went back home and came back next year. See you next year. The guys in the yeshiva would pick on him and say, here comes the, the one day a year scholar. Here he is. The one day a year genius is back. And they would pick on him. And Rabbi Yohanan was the rabbi and he said, please, he told this guy, don't let these rabbis pick on you. Please don't get angry at them. They're wrong. I'm going to chastise them. Rabbi Yohanan came in and said, you don't understand. He says, this man learns one day, but God considers it. He learns the whole year. How could it be? So Rabbi Yohanan explained. He says, this man, you know why he's not learning all year? Because he's busy. He's making a patnasa. He has a legal exemption. Trying to make a living. That's why he can't learn all day long. But look, the one day a year that he has available to learn, he's in the Bet Midrash. So you know what God says? We're going to give him the credit that he learned all year long because we see what he does when he's able to learn. The fact that the one day that he's able to, he learns that indicates to us that all the other days, if he would have the ability, he would learn also. It's just that he's uh, preoccupied with making Panazah. 
Therefore, for this person, it's like he learned the whole entire year. It's a big hadush, the way God calculates things. Jesus, God doesn't hold it against us if we're busy with certain things, but he judges us when on the day off. On the day off where you have the time, now what are you doing with your time? So if you waste it, so God says, how can I give him credit when he's working? Here he's not working, he doesn't use his time correctly. But if he uses his time correctly on a day off, that indicates to me that if he would have more days off, which he doesn't, he would probably use it for the right thing, so I give him credit for it. And that's what David Amelik says also. That every day that a person is able to spend the Beit HaMidrash, but Elam says that day does not only get rewarded for itself, but that's an indication on all the other days that he wasn't able to come. He'll get reward as well. Because God says, you see when he has the availability what he's doing. So therefore you can't hold it against him when he doesn't have it. Okay, that is, that's chapter 61. It's in the bank. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen.